because there are truths stated in the Psalms which find their origins in, in Genesis 1 and 2, and they help to build our foundations. And the big take-home from the sermon series you'll see in bold there um, is this, that I think that Christians have a double stewardship. We're to steward the globe, and we're to steward the gospel. So if you're right, that's the kind of headline for tonight. That's the, the take-home. We've got a double stewardship. We need to steward the globe and steward the gospel. And I think it's possible to do both those things. And indeed, I think we, we are um, commanded to do both those things. So um, let's um, get our bearings from Genesis 1 and 2, but begin by going to Psalm 24. Now, it'd be lovely to get a, a change of voice tonight so that it's not just me speaking. So would somebody be willing to read Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2? I think there's a microphone coming around. Is that right? So we can hear you. Brilliant. Thank you. Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. Great. Um, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the sea, seas, and established it on the waters. Fantastic. Thank you. Now, when you make something, you own it, don't you? Um, <clears throat> so you make some pottery, you own it. You draw a picture, you own it. And of course, so it is with God. And what did he make? Everything. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He owns it. He owns us because we live in the earth as well. And of course, what Psalm 24 uh, states there, Genesis 1 and 2 then describe for us how God made a good world. Do you remember at the end of uh, each day of creation, we're, we're told that God looked at what he had made and saw that it was good. We're told that God made an ordered world. Do you remember how we're told that he made plants and trees, each according to its kind, and every living creature according to their kinds? There is an order to God's creation. It's ironic, isn't it, that, that many have this idea that kind of science and Christianity are somehow kind of incompatible or kind of at, at war against each other. But of course, unless God had made an ordered world, you can't do any science. And that's something that the uh, earliest scientists and many of the great early scientists, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, Michael Faraday, they knew that. They knew that the only reason they could do scientific inquiry is because God made a, an ordered world. If you've um, ever been to Cambridge, you may have passed the, the uh, Cavendish Science Laboratory. And over the, uh, the door there is a quotation. Uh, it's not from Richard Dawkins. It's from the Bible. Psalm 111, verse 2. It's in Latin, and the translation are, Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. And long may that uh, text remain over that door, that door. So the world is good, but the world is not God. It's good, but it's not God. So we need to be very careful that we worship God and not the creation. You don't need me to tell you that so much of the talk today in environmental climate change circles is effectively idolatrous. Kind of planet Earth is, is this kind of God. Uh, Mother Earth is kind of worshipped and we've somehow offended her, the creation. And the climate change movement can often come across as effectively a new religion. 
So as we anthropomorphize the planet, um, as if the planet was a sentient being or a loving parent, and then discussions about the climate emergency, what should be done, is often described in quite apocalyptic terms. Then we have the concept of original sin, that's industrialization. We need to have kind of an acceptance of universal guilt that we get rid of through self-denial and penance, you know, not flying to the Maldives on holiday, that kind of thing. And it's presented very much as can, in religious language. But of course, the worship there is not the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, but it's of planet earth, and that's not helpful. So remember, the, the earth is good, but it's not God. Um, <clears throat> the earth is the Lord's. The earth is not the Lord. It's an important distinction. We must always keep the creator and the creation distinct. So even if we seek to care for the world, as we'll see in a minute, we need to be careful not to worship the world, but rather worship the one who made it. And I think that actually worshipping God rightly will mean that Christians are at the forefront of creation care, because we understand that this is his world, and he's given us a responsibility to care for it. So let's move from seeing that the earth is the Lord's to seeing, secondly, that the earth is ours. And therefore, we should steward the globe. So come on in the Psalms to Psalm 115. <clears throat> and if someone else, please, could read 115 and verse 16. Thank you. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the human race. Thank you. So do you see the extraordinary thing? The earth is the Lord's because he made it, but he's given it to us, according to this verse. He's loaned it to us. He's entrusted to it, entrusted us uh, with it. He's given us the, the leasehold of the world. And as long as we live in his leaseholded world, we're to look after it, we're to care for it. Now we see that, don't we, in, in Genesis 1. So come back to Genesis 1, 28. And we see God's command to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28. Could someone else read that, please? Genesis 1, 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Fantastic. Thank you. So do you see there the word rule? Uh, it can also mean have dominion. Now that word rule and dominion is not an excuse for us to abuse the world or to dominate the world for our own advantage. Rather, we're to serve the world, to protect it, to keep it. Similarly, chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> Do you see how we're told there? The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. There's an old English word, husbandry. We tend not to use it much, very, very much these days. But I think it's a lovely word because it describes the, the care and the cultivation of the land. So just as a husband and a wife love and care for each other, 
that the, the, the man, mankind, is sort of the husband of the ground, if you like. He is husbanding it, tending it carefully, gently, lovingly, uh, leadingly. So we often use the word stewardship, don't we? Um, I'm not sure that stewardship is actually technically a biblical word um, in terms of creation, but it is clearly a biblical concept. Ruling, caring, having dominion, having stewardship. We are stewards of the world. And of course, the whole point about being a steward is it's not yours. You've been entrusted. uh, It's been entrusted to you. And therefore, we are to care for it. So that's why I think Christians ought to be at the forefront of caring for creation. Because we know the biblical mandate. And we want to uh, fulfill it now, partly to uh, allay the fears of those who thought I was jumping on the cultural bandwagon, um, I've got a quotation here from John Calvin. Um, he is a pastor in, in France in the 16th century. Um, he wouldn't know what woke meant uh, back then. He wouldn't know what it meant today, probably. But I love this quotation. I think it's beautiful. Let him who possess a field so partake of its yearly fruits that he may not suffer the ground to be injured by his negligence, but let him endeavour to hand it down to posterity as he received it, or even better cultivated. Moreover, that this economy and this diligence, with respect to those good things which God has given us to enjoy, may flourish among us. Let everyone regard himself as the steward of God in all things which he possesses. I think that's a call to Christian stewardship, to Christian husbandry. Um, and I think it's, it's a, lovely, a lovely truth. He clearly thought that caring responsibly for this creation was part and parcel of our Christian discipleship. Now, when I was teaching this, I was pretty careful not to be prescriptive about what that might look like. I wanted to try and equip Christians to think, okay, these are the principles. What's that going to look like for me in my home, in my work, in my place, um, wherever it might be? What's it going to look like like for us as a church? Um, Rather than saying, you must do it this way, Um, giving the principles not least because I think Christians will think differently about how this works out and I think that's fine it's absolutely fine for Christians to to think differently on how this works out I don't think we should well we can't think differently on the biblical foundations the biblical principles because they are given to us they're non-negotiables but what that looks like in terms of outworking uh, may look different and we may disagree and that's okay don't worry about it um, we can disagree, and, and um, that's, that's not a problem. <clears throat> so how are we doing in the stewardship of God's globe? Well, you'd have to say not very well. Of course, Genesis 3, sin has profoundly dislocated the world. As uh, sin enters the world, uh, everything uh, goes haywire. And you'll know that both in Genesis 3 and throughout the Old Testament... There is this repeated connection between humanity's sin and its disruptive effects on the environment, spoiling it, marring it. So our relationship with God is out of sorts and our relationship with the creation is out of sorts. And we'll come on to see in Romans 8 uh, the impact of human selfishness, greed, exploitation. And actually, again, this is where I think this topic is one where we can be on the front foot as Christians. Um, there are lots of topics in the current climate where, I don't know about you, but I just feel on the back foot the whole time, right? 
But I think this is one where we, we can be on the front foot because we're, we're living in a world where people know that everything's not right. And, and we can see the devastating impact of humanity's selfishness on the globe. And we know why that is. We have got the, the Bible's answers. And so I think we can go into this, this whole discussion confidently rather than thinking, yikes, what am I going to say about this? Um, so I think we can be we can positive. Now, <clears throat> with that, just hold together um, Genesis 8.22. This is important. <clears throat> Could somebody else please read Genesis 8.22? It's the last verse of chapter 8. As long as the earth... Summer and winter... Day and night will never cease. Thank you. So um, what's happened since Genesis 3, obviously we've had the, the fall, we've had um, sin spreading, we've had um, God's judgment, we've had God's salvation, uh, and this is after Noah um, comes out of the ark and God is renewing his covenant. And what a wonderful promise there at the end of chapter 8. Um, and I think that's a promise with no expiry date. So whatever happens, I think the rhythms of life will endure. Season will follow season, day will follow night. And I think that's just a helpful corrective to some of the fear that we often hear from the kind of climate change lobby. Um, <clears throat> I'm not saying that there aren't things we must take seriously, but I don't think we should live in fear because we have a God who is committed to his, crea his creation. And I think this promise still stands um, so hold on to, to Genesis 8.22 and let that allay some of the fears that we hear. <clears throat> so, the earth is the Lord's, worship him. The earth is ours, so steward the globe. And then thirdly, the earth is Christ's, so steward the gospel. Come to Psalm 8. <clears throat> Do you see how I'm kind of using the Psalms as a bit of a commentary on Genesis uh, 1 and 2? And Psalm 8, you may know, it's a beautiful celebration of God's creation, and particularly the pinnacle of God's creation, which is humanity. So the Bible has a high view of creation. It has a particularly high view of humanity. And see what Psalm 8 says about um, humanity. So let's pick it up at verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. <clears throat> you have given him, uh, you have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You have put everything under their feet. Now the New Testament makes it clear that those verses are not about humanity in general, but about one human in particular. They're about Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the only one who has lived in God's world God's way, the one who has ruled over the works of God's hands perfectly, consistently, forever. And that is great news because it means that Jesus is the one under whom uh, uh, God has put everything and therefore he is the one in whom all things hold together in whom all things get fixed 
And it's that good news that's been entrusted to us as Christians. We are stewards, if you like, of this good news. And of course, the way we steward it is by passing it on and making sure that we're passing on the real thing rather than a diluted version of it. So do you see then how we, we've got this double stewardship? We're to, we're to steward the globe and we're to steward the gospel. Now, of course, it is possible for those two stewardships to compete with each other. So much so we, you know, we could spend all our time and energy stewarding the globe and so neglect stewarding the gospel. And of course, the problem with that is that our concern for the planet is suffocating our concern for the actual people who live on the planet. Because if I love people, I want to tell them the gospel, right? Now, I guess it's also possible to be just so stewarding the gospel to completely neglect stewarding the globe. But I don't think that it's a choice we we have to take. That actually we can hold both together. As we'll come on to see, I don't think they have equal priority. It's just like you get 50% of the time the globe and 50% of the gospel. Um, I think there is a greater responsibility to steward the gospel because of what it says about a new creation coming. But I think healthy Christian discipleship will have a concern for both the globe and the gospel. And we can do that. We can hold those together perfectly well. And again, that's good news for us as we think about living um, in the world because we can be on the front foot. Um, talking about creation and what's gone wrong with it and how it can get fixed, well, that's kind of stuff we know about as Christians. Um, you know, when I get onto the whole gender thing, I kind of feel like I'm at, I'm at a way fixture. You know, I'm like, yikes, right? But when I'm on this, I feel like I'm at home game. It's like, yeah, we can, you know, you know. Now we can do the gender stuff too, but that's, that's trickier. Whereas this feels like, yeah, I can talk to you about this. So feel, feel confident that you, um, you can really connect with, uh, with, um, with people uh, on these discussions. Great. So that's um, a quick whistle stop of um, Genesis 1 and 2 via three uh, Psalms. Psalm 24, Psalm 115, and Psalm 8. Andy, do we want to stop there and ask questions, or shall I keep going and do questions at the end? Which is better? Any immediate kind of like, hey, what about this? And what do you mean by that? And you can't really be serious about this? <laughs> yes, question at the back. Shout it out. So you're saying that Christians haven't been at the forefront of these discussions? Yes. Yeah, no, I'm sure that's right. And we'll come on to why that might be in, in just a moment. So I, I think we, we, we've, we, we've got a really important part to play in these discussions. And we haven't got a great track record on it. Um, yeah, but yeah, good point. Okay, look, let's bat on. And... Um, you, uh, you feel free to ask questions um, later on. 
So we're going to come out of Romans 8, and we're going to come at Romans 8 through David Attenborough, of all people. Um, he's an amazing guy, isn't he? I mean, there he is, what, 90-something or other, still making programs. And, you know, in many ways, he's become the kind of spokesman for um, the climate emergency. Although, I do think it's very interesting. If you look, you know, like, I kind of feel like 15, 20 years ago, you'd watch a David Attenborough program, and, and you'd be like, oh, great, there's animals, and it's cool, and, it's this, and you kind of it. Now it's like, yikes, ah! You know, and the, if you want to see the fear factor, just spot the change in David Attenborough programs over the years. Um, anyway, he said this, we are at a unique stage in our history. Never before have we had such an awareness of what we are doing to the planet, and never before have we had the power to do something about that. Surely, we all have a responsibility to care for our blue planet, the future of humanity, and indeed all life on Earth, now depends on us. I think he's capturing there what many climate activists say. We humans are central both to the problem of climate change and to its solution. And I think Romans 8 would say that he's almost right. He's almost right. So let's see um, how he's almost right. And do that by grasping four things which matter as we continue to make connections between the Bible and the environment. So come to Romans chapter 8. And the first thing I want us to see is that matter matters. Matter matters. That is, creation is good. Now, in some ways, I'm just repeating what I said earlier from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, That's because the Bible is consistent. And uh, Paul would say the same in, in Romans 8. So in Romans 8, verses 19 to 22, Paul's talking about creation. And in chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, he's talking about Christians. Now, as we're going to see a bit later, those two things are totally connected. The future of Christians and the future of creation are utterly bound together. But just for now, uh, let's just underline what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, namely that God made a good world. And therefore, matter matters because God made it. Now, I want to really stress that because I think, going back to your good point at the back there, was that Nush who said that? Yeah, one of the reasons we've gone to a pickle is that we Christians have bought into a faulty way of thinking that thinks spiritual good, physical bad. I was talking to uh, a Christian vicar, actually, uh, and he had recently cremated his mother. I'm sorry, she died first and then cremated her. <clears throat> and um, I was expressing my sort of sympathies with him. And he said, oh, it's all right. It was only like throwing away a banana skin. And I thought that really captures that faulty theology. You know, her soul is with Christ. Hallelujah. And that's true. Her body is just a banana skin. We can cremate it. And I guess uh, an unhelpful and unbiblical dichotomy. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that matter matters. Our bodies matter. The physical world matters. Jesus Christ took a human body. He still has a human body in heaven. I mean, that is the greatest kind of proof to us that matter matters, right? There is a body in heaven right now, a physical body in heaven right now, Christ's body, okay? The incarnation, the resurrection, big thumbs up to God thinking that matter matters, right? And because matter matters to God, 
I think matter should matter to us. Again, that's why we should be involved with these discussions, not just discussions, but actions, because we care about matter, because God cares about it. So, um, that's important to know. Uh, matter matters. But the second thing that is, is that sin matters. Creation is groaning. So, someone please read uh, chapter 8 and verse 18. Thank you. Uh, no, why don't you read a bit more? That's a good idea. Rita, 18 to, uh, I don't know, 22? 22, yeah, 18 to 22. Thank you. Okay. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Next bit. Um, yeah, verse 22 as well, thanks. Okay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the cha- pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Good stuff. I wonder whether this... <clears throat> um, illustration helps so think of creation as like a a beautiful mirror which reflects the glory of God so the heavens declare the glory of God and we see the beauty of God's goodness reflected in this great mirror of creation but Adam and Eve's rebellion chucks this massive stone at the mirror and so the mirror is totally smashed now the fact is you can still see in the shards of the mirror the beauty of God, and that's why we can enjoy so many good things in this world and appreciate those things because they're sort of still there, but they are smashed up and they need to be kind of put back together. And that's what Paul's talking about here when he talks about creation groaning and being subjected uh, to futility and decay. And the image he uses is that of a woman in the pains of childbirth. Now, as we'll think a bit later, that's actually a very positive image because although mothers here will know that the pains of childbirth are not good, what comes out is beautiful and well worth it. Okay, so it's actually a a positive image. But I think, you know, we look around the world today and we see very clearly, don't we, the groaning of creation. We see the, the futility of creation. And I think that shows us that um, that sin is the problem and unless sin is dealt with we're not going to be able to put the mirror back together properly and it also gives us a healthy dose of realism so the world is decaying so we shouldn't be surprised when things get worse that's that's what decay means right and I think therefore we need to be realistic as we join this conversation um, that there's a, there's, a, there's a kind of unbridled optimism amongst some kind of the, of the climate activists, you know, that we can fix all this, you know, by, by this time. And we need to have a healthy realism that actually we are in bondage to decay. Now, at the same time, that realism shouldn't lead to fatalism. 
So think about our bodies, for example. I'm going to let you into a secret about myself. My body is decaying. I know, I know, I know it doesn't look like it. You know, I look in my exquisite 49-year-old prime, but it's true, my body's decaying. Now, I don't wake up in the morning going, do you know what, oh, my body's decaying. So I'm just going to stay in bed today and not do very much because it's just decaying. What's the point, you know? I don't think, oh, these teeth, you know, they're going to fall out at some point. What's the point in brushing them? No, I get up and I brush my teeth and I go for a run and, you know, but my body's decaying. So realism, yes. Fatalism, no. All right? We still have a shower, I hope. It's a good thing to do, even though your body is decaying. Now, the great news is, both for my body and for the world, there is hope. End of verse 20. It says that God subjected it. So the will of the one who subjected it in hope is God. So he subjected it to futility in hope. And that takes us back to the whole groaning woman in childbirth thing. It's a hopeful groaning. That the groans are not groans of death. They're groans of life. That brings us thirdly to Christians matter. Creation is waiting. Now that's encouraging because so often the world says Christians just don't matter. I mean, you're irrelevant at worst, you're dangerous, sorry, you're irrelevant at best, you're dangerous at worst. You Christians don't matter at all. You are history. You are are so irrelevant. That's not what creation thinks. No, look, verse 19 says that creation is waiting. The the, the picture here is of creation on tiptoes. It's kind of looking. It's looking out. And what's it looking for? Well, it tells us, end of verse 19, that it's looking for, it's waiting for, the children of God to be revealed. They know, the creation knows that the key to its future is the revealing of the sons of God. You see, when Adam was king in Genesis 1 and 2, the world was right. When he stopped being king in Genesis 3, the world wasn't right and hasn't been ever since. And it won't be right again until a son of Adam is king. And that's why creation's looking around thinking, when's it going to be? When's the king coming? When are these children of the sons of God going to be revealed? And the big question, of course, then comes is, who are these children of God? I used to live in India, and uh, Mahatma Gandhi is obviously uh, revered there by, by many. And he once said this, we are all God's children, and we are all one. That is wonderfully true that we're all created by God. Therefore, all of us have a dignity and a worth that comes from being created in his image. But of course, the Bible insists that it's only Christians who are children of God, that we can be adopted as his sons and daughters by trusting in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And so creation is waiting for all the children of God to be brought in Verse 23, uh, waiting for our adoption to be complete as we're given a new body, a redeemed body. And on that day, it will be set free from the bondage to decay and it will be obtaining the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So do you see how the future of creation is tied to the future of Christians? So when David Attenborough says the future of humanity and indeed all of life on earth now depends on us, the Bible would say, absolutely, as long as we understand the us there to be Christians in particular, not humanity in general. 
said, you see, we're not irrelevant. We hold the key to the world's future. Now, I think that's really helpful because it means that creation is not waiting for net zero. Creation is not waiting for COP 422 to fix the world. No, creation is waiting for Christians to be gathered in and fully and finally redeemed. Because creation knows that when we get fixed, it gets fixed. Christians matter. That brings us, fourthly, to Christ matters. Because he is the one who adopts and who sets free. So Jesus is the second Adam. He's the new Adam. He rules as king where the old Adam didn't. And he's the only one who can set us free, who can adopt us as children of God. And so he is key to the redemption of our bodies and the redemption of our world. So do you see, in all our discussions and actions about responding to climate change, Christ must be central. As we steward the globe and steward the gospel, uh, he needs to be right at the heart of things. We think, uh, we live in a world where people think that creation's kind of waiting for humans to fix the planet, to save the planet. And we, we need to realize that we can't fix the planet. We can't save the planet. Creation's actually waiting for humanity to be saved, not for creation to be saved. So I take it that if we want to save the planet, we want to get big with the gospel, right? If we really care about the planet, we will tell people about Jesus, the one who can redeem us, make us God's children, and the one uh, who will uh, bring all things together in him. And that is such a great hope. As I mentioned earlier, I think one of the great sadnesses of these discussions is that they can be so dominated by fear and, and, and scaremongering, and that isn't to say there aren't serious things we need to, to look at, but actually we are motivated by hope, and we have a wonderful hope, and into that sort of discussion of fear we can bring um, the wonderful hope of Christ. So don't fear, do hope, and realise matter matters, so care about it. Sin matters, that's why creation's groaning. Christians matter, Creation is waiting for us to get fully redeemed. <clears throat> Christ matters. He's the key to that. Good. Um, well, I'm going to crack on, if you don't mind, because the next bit isn't very long, <clears throat> and then we can do questions at the end. So um, <clears throat> let's come now to 2 Peter 3. So if you imagine a three-legged stool um, that we're trying to create, or a biblical three-legged stool, We've looked at the first leg, the goodness of creation, Genesis 1 and 2. We've looked at the second leg, the groaning of creation, Romans 8. And now we're going to look at 2 Peter 3, the glory of the new creation. <clears throat> so come with me in your Bibles. Turn right almost to the end, but not quite, to 2 Peter. <clears throat> 2 Peter 3. p.m. on the 14th of April 1912 was an important date and time in British history. You may remember that was the time that the Titanic struck an iceberg in the North Atlantic at a speed of 23 miles an hour. 
As we all know, the iceberg scraped alongside the starboard side of the ship below the waterline, sliced open uh, the hull between five of the adjacent watertight compartments, and from that moment, the watertight integrity of the entire forward section of the hull was fatally breached. Titanic was doomed to sink, which she did only a few hours later at 2.20 in the morning. And of course, the only thing that mattered in those three hours was getting people off the Titanic, getting them into the lifeboats. I mean, rearranging the deck chairs, packing your suitcase, preparing breakfast, that would be a complete waste of time. And I think a lot of Bible-believing Christians take that kind of view when it comes to our world. Maybe you've even heard that used as an illustration. I probably used it as an illustration. Come on, get people on the lifeboats. It's the only thing that matters. Don't do anything else. Now, it's true that when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the world hit the iceberg. In some ways, the planet is doomed. <clears throat> and, you know, uh, saving people really matters. But if you take that kind of view um, sort of to as extreme, that everything else is just a waste of time, right? So, you know, anything else like talking about creation care, well, it's just like rearranging the deck chairs. What a waste of time. Just get people on lifeboats. Now, at first glance, 2 Peter 3 seems to agree with that. So if someone could read verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3.10. <clears throat> but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The ele elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Thank you. Aha! You see, the planet's going to sink. Well, at least it's going to get burned up. So don't care about the planet. Just care about people. But here's the thing, right? Fire not only destroys, it transforms. And I think a careful reading of 2 Peter 3, along with other parts of the Bible, will show us that God will not only destroy this world, but will transform this world. He's going to make it new. God will make a new heavens and a new earth. And we see that in verse 13. But in keeping with his promise... We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. I said earlier that often we Christians have a muddled view of the kind of body. I think we often have a muddled view of the afterlife. And you know the kind of popular caricature of heaven as a spiritual place where we're floating around on clouds, wearing nighties, strumming harps. That is not the Bible's view of heaven. And I'm very glad it's not. Because I don't really fancy floating around on clouds, wearing nighties, strumming harps for eternity. I'd rather go to somewhere real and physical and lovely and beautiful and do things. And that is the Bible's view of heaven. It's a new heavens and a new earth. We often talk about people going up to heaven. The Bible's view is much more concerned about God coming down to earth. So think of the downward movements in the Bible. So in Eden... God comes down to walk with Adam and Eve. In the tabernacle, in the temple, God comes down to dwell with his people. Christmas, God comes down and lives, dwells with us. 
And one day God the Son will come down again. And when he does, he will bring with him, he will bring down with him a new heavens and a new earth. We, we could have done this from Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, what's it going to be like, this new heaven and this new earth? Well, we don't know everything, but we do know that because it will be this world transformed, it will be both like this world and unlike this world. Okay, so there's going to be continuity and there's going to be discontinuity. And what I want to say is that because there will be continuity, don't give up on the globe. And because there'll be discontinuity, don't give up on the gospel. Now, the best way to get hold of this is think about Jesus' resurrection body. Think about his resurrection body. There was both continuity and discontinuity. So after his resurrection, he could still eat like he ate with his disciples. He could do that before he died and rose again. He did it after he died, after he rose again. There's continuity. There's also discontinuity. He ascends to heaven in a kind of way I don't quite fully understand. But he didn't do that before his resurrection body was raised. So there's continuity and discontinuity. And it's, like, it's going to be like that with <clears throat> the world. So let's think about continuity uh, first of all. And we see that in uh, 2 Peter 3, verses 4 to 6. Someone read that, please. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But these waters also, the world that, sorry, by these waters also, the world at that, of that time was deluged and destroyed. Thanks. In verse 7 as well, please. Um, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Thank you. So think about the world uh, that Noah lived in. The world he lived in before the flood and the world he lived in after the flood, there was some continuity between those worlds. Now, in between that, there was a time when God uh, destroyed the world. He judged the world by water. But in that judgment, he didn't destroy the world completely. There was a transformation of it as well. And that's, I think, the pattern we get for verse 7, that one day God is going to judge the world, this time with fire, not with water. There will be a burning up of uh, things, the ungodly, but there will also be a purification and a transformation. So I think that continuity helps us um, think about, about this world. I think it shows us that what we do in this world matters because there is a continuity between what we do now and what we'll do later. There's a lovely, um, in fact, why not turn to it, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 
<clears throat> Revelation 21, 24. It's a really intriguing um, little verse. Revelation 21, 24. Talking about the new creation. It says, The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. Now, I don't quite fully understand that, but there seems to be some kind of continuity between what the kings of the earth did in this world and then bringing it into the next world. Okay? So I think that means that your studies at school, your work in politics, your work in the home or the arts or the community is not insignificant. Okay? That is... It's not just like the gospel's the only thing that matters and everything else which just doesn't matter. Okay, there is significance to your studies, to your work, to your gardening, to your whatever it might be that you, you do. Okay? <clears throat> and I think it's a, it's a wonderful thought to think of the new creation as a place filled with the glory and the honour of the nations. It's not just going to be like a big version of London. It's going to be much more interesting than that. So there's going to be continuity. That means don't give up on the globe. There's also going to be discontinuity. So think about God's promise, both in 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, um, that he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Okay? It's going to be like this heavens and this earth, but new, better, different. Um, I love this description of heaven. It's an unknown region with a well-known inhabitant. And that well-known inhabitant, of course, is the Lord Jesus. And he is going to be at the centre of all things. And, of course, how do we, how do we uh, come into the new creation? Well, we come into it through Christ. Um, he is the one who brings us there. And that's why we are committed to, uh, to the gospel. So as we, as we finish up, I hope those <coughs> three things have helped us um, to kind of, uh, at least put some kind of biblical foundations in place. I'm really sorry, I haven't answered all your questions by a long chalk, and I won't in the question and answer session we might have now. Um, I haven't got all the answers, but God's word is true and good and can help us um, as we engage with these things. And I really want to encourage us to, to, to engage with these things. Not to feel on the back foot, but to feel on the front foot um, of these things. Because um, we have this double stewardship. And we have um, so many of the answers that the world is scrabbling around trying to find. And sometimes getting close. I mean, that quotation from David Attenborough. I mean, he's so close, isn't he? I mean, he's, he's almost there. If only can see that it's Christians who hold the key to all this. Um, so there we go. Great. We have a few minutes for questions uh, or comments, things that you found helpful, maybe books, resources you found useful, um, things that you do as you try and practice this or are hoping to do.